This episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast is sponsored by AWS Energy. AWS brings the most advanced and secure cloud services and deep industry expertise across energy, utilities, and sustainable energy sectors. Together with a broad partner ecosystem, AWS is accelerating the energy transition through practical innovations to deliver energy efficiently, reliably, sustainably, and responsibly. Learn more at aws.amazon.com slash energy. Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Dr. Dave Edland, founder and CEO of Element One. Element One is building hydrogen generators. Their system is designed to be on-site, on-demand, and mobile. If you focus on hydrogen, you understand just how big of a statement that is. If you're like me with your head in the sand, You've got some questions, so now let's get some answers. Dave, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Element One. Sure. Thank you, Joe, for having me. Uh, I'm a a chemist. I'm educated in chemistry, um, followed that up with um, chemical engineering, but I've spent my whole career working in the hydrogen space, developing hydrogen production, hydrogen purification, and learning how fuel cells uh, operate and, and how to construct them. Element One Corp is focused on hydrogen generation. Uh, and that's high purity hydrogen, not just um, any grade of hydrogen. Our business model is technology development and licensing. So that makes us a little bit unique. We're, we have no ambition to be a commercial manufacturer, but we look to our licensing partners to provide expertise in manufacturing, sales, and marketing. Very cool. So it really is a a development of that technology that you're focused on, not necessarily becoming a big, large hydrogen producer. That's correct. That's correct. We we believe very much in partnering, and, and I think that may have been a factor in in our winning a position in the um, Amazon Energy Accelerator uh, earlier this year. Um, that program does emphasize collaborations and, and we found that to be a very useful takeaway from the program. Great, yeah, I'm excited to jump into that more and, and talk about the AWS Clean Energy Accelerator, but let's focus on, on you and the technology first and really understand what and where this fits in. So you're saying you work on the technology development side. Can you just give us, if somebody somebody has no idea what we're talking about here, mobile hydrogen generation, yeah. <clears throat> let's say, what exactly is that? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. I think it really sets the foundation for um, for more discussion. So I think people, most people, are familiar with the term hydrogen, and and they probably know that hydrogen is a gas. But that's probably where the knowledge stops for the vast majority of um, uh, consumers or potential consumers. The question really is then, where does hydrogen come from? And that's that's a fascinating question on, on many levels. I've been working in this industry since 1987. And uh, when I first started uh, uh, working professionally, uh, looking at hydrogen production and hydrogen purification, the, uh, the general belief <clears throat> is that hydrogen is not produced naturally uh, on Earth. Now, it's, it's, a, it's very prevalent. It's the most predominant element in the universe. So when you go outside of Earth, you see it everywhere. Stars <clears throat> are hydrogen. But on Earth, the thought was you know, hydrogen just doesn't exist in the free form. And therefore, industries have been built uh, going back to the early 1900s around making hydrogen. What for? For petroleum refining, for petrochemical production. So making hydrogen is not new. People know how to do that, have been doing it commercially on huge scale for a long, long time. Uh, but really what we're looking at in the clean energy transition is relatively small quantities of hydrogen that are being consumed at many, 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 many points around the United States or around the world. You can think of it as end of use or point of use um, uh, for electricity or water. Okay, electricity and water are huge infrastructures, but at the end it comes down to individuals using a little bit of electricity or a little bit of water in their home, their business, um, at, at stores, wherever it might be. How do we get hydrogen to that same level of distribution? And the answer today is that hydrogen is produced in these massive factories and then either liquefied, which is very difficult to do, very energy intensive, very expensive, or it's compressed to thousands of pounds per square inch and put into a truck and transported. So you have this model for hydrogen that is very much different than other energy sources that we use. And that is that you produce hydrogen in huge quantities and then you transport it. And it's the transportation that's difficult. And that's why our pitch and what seems to resonate well is skip over the transportation of hydrogen and instead let's move a liquid that arguably is comparable to moving liquid fuels like gasoline or diesel and then at the point where we want to use the hydrogen, we'll make it there and avoid all of the costs and difficulties with hydrogen distribution infrastructure. Interesting. Interesting. So I think that that last point was very was very important to understand. It It's really, as you were talking, the the on-demand hydrogen production and end and, and user point point of use production. Right. And, and it makes me think of in, in our houses nowadays, everybody is talking about, uh, on demand, hot water generation. And it, you make it when you need it basically. Right. Right. So I guess what, when we think about this, 
this uh, this difference in model from a large production versus an on-demand point source production. What has been what has been the primary stopping factor, or why is it just now we're talking about point source production versus versus what what I've been seeing in the past five years of talking about hydrogen hubs and producing at massive scale and then building out building out all the pipelines and all of the transportation. So before I answer that question, let me just go back to your analogy because I, I think it's a it's a very good one, a very powerful analogy to really think about. That's the on-demand hot water. <clears throat> and um, it, you know when, when I first um, when I first listened to you, I thought, okay, on-demand hot water versus a water heater. And that's really not right, though, because a water heater stores hot water at your house. The real way to think about this or the correct way to think about this is imagine that your choices as a consumer were the on-demand hot water heater or buying hot water, which is made 100 miles away and then transported in a truck to your house. Isn't that crazy? That's just absolutely asinine idea. But yet that's what we do with hydrogen today. So what has been holding back the... um, the commercial adoption, the market penetration for on-demand hydrogen production. And I I don't think that there's one answer to that question. And I would imagine that if you asked um, veterans of the industry, you probably would come up with many, many different answers. Uh, Again, I've been doing this for 35 years. And back in the mid-90s, the idea of combining a hydrogen generator, that is a machine that converts a feedstock into pure hydrogen and then sending that hydrogen to a fuel cell to make electricity, that concept was completely novel to the point where if you could do that at a scale of 500 watts, you had an important announcement to share at conferences, to publish papers, to go seek government funding. All of those are signs of lack of commercialization. Those signs point to this is a laboratory curiosity and it is not a commercial product. And that was very true for the time. Um, I think the problem became complicated by the fact that there are many, many different feedstocks that one might use to make hydrogen. At Element One, we focus on methanol, which is an alcohol. It's a liquid And there are many desirable attributes that go with that feedstock being a liquid. Other feedstocks that people have looked at and have successfully commercialized include natural gas. Uh, Bloom Energy has made um, a very very good success out of commercializing solid oxide fuel cells that convert natural gas into electricity. And that natural gas then is a feedstock It undergoes a chemical change inside the uh, fuel cell in a way that is analogous to what we do with with methanol to make hydrogen. Other feedstocks that have been looked at over the year include propane, gasoline, diesel, aviation fuel, even ethanol. Ethanol is the type of alcohol that we drink. And it turns out that vodka, this is an interesting fact to share at a cocktail party, Vodka has just the right ratio of alcohol and water 
to make it a very good feedstock for making hydrogen. There are drawbacks with all of these other feedstocks with the exclusion of methanol that have really resulted in a failure to achieve commercial success. And, and that's the point to think about. Running a system in a laboratory for 100 hours or 1,000 hours and collecting data is a far cry from being commercial. And one of the most important facts or factors in being successful commercially is favorable economics. And favorable economics imply durable, easy to service, long life, low operating cost, low capital cost. Achieving those goals is a lot of work from a starting point of a laboratory test article. And that quite literally has taken decades and a lot of false starts that have led nowhere. That's very interesting. So what about methanol and the system that you've developed? What about that lends itself to these favorable economics and and making a robust, easy to service, more universal system? Okay. So let's begin by first um, uh, addressing what is a hydrogen generator? What does a hydrogen generator do? And my answer is general. It's not limited to what we do here at Element One. A hydrogen generator is sometimes called a reformer. And that name reformer implies reform or transform. Uh, And that's exactly what a hydrogen generator does. It takes a feedstock Uh, It could be methanol, it could be natural gas, it could be any feedstock. Often water is is mixed with that feedstock. And then a chemical transformation takes place inside the machine that converts the feedstock into a gas stream, which has hydrogen in it, actually a lot, usually around 60, 70, 80% hydrogen with byproducts consisting of carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and water vapor. Now that gas cannot be used directly in a fuel cell, and it probably is not even suitable for use in an engine because of varying composition of that gas. So it needs to be purified, and that is a challenge. Making hydrogen, honestly, is very easy. As I said before, it's been done for decades at very large scale in support of our basic industries, uh, oil refining and petrochemicals. But purifying hydrogen is challenging, especially at a small scale, which is what we need for on-site hydrogen generation or on-demand hydrogen generation. So inside that hydrogen generator, there is a, a means or a method for extracting high purity hydrogen from that impure intermediate product gas stream. And by high purity, for fuel cells, we really should be looking at greater than 99.99% hydrogen with less than 0.2 ppm parts per million of carbon monoxide. And it's really the latter part of that, the CO content being so low, that's what is hard to achieve with most separation processes. We've worked on a way and have commercialized a way to do that that I'll talk about later. So why is methanol a good choice for a feedstock versus all of the other possibilities? For a couple of reasons. <clears throat> methanol is a liquid. Natural gas, of course, is not. It's a gas. 
Um, propane is a compressed liquefied gas. Ammonia, another candidate feedstock for making hydrogen, is a compressed liquefied gas. And then we have diesel, gasoline, aviation fuel, which of course are liquids, but they're liquids made up of molecules with a lot of carbon atoms bonded together in those molecules. And that's where the rub occurs. Anytime we have a carbon-carbon bond in a feedstock, which is every feedstock other than methanol or natural gas, which is methane, those carbon-carbon bonds are hard to break. It takes a lot of energy to do that. And the energy comes in the form of high temperature. The reforming reaction occurs at elevated temperature. And for every feedstock other than methanol, that temperature is on the order of 800, 900 degrees centigrade. And to give you an idea of what temperature that is, steel is about the color of a Halloween pumpkin at that temperature, bright orange. So it's hot and it takes special alloys to do that that are expensive and not always available. So the two major attributes of methanol as a feedstock is that it can be reformed at low temperature on the order of 400 degrees, 350 degrees centigrade. At that temperature, I can use common stainless steel, which although it's expensive, it's not as expensive as alloys that need to operate at 800 or 900 degrees. Methanol is a liquid so that it's easily transported. Just like gasoline or diesel, it's put into metal or plastic tanks that can be any shape. I can't do that with compressed liquefied gases. By definition, those are under pressure, and so they're stored in heavy steel cylinders or spheres. And when you're trying to put cylinders and spheres on a vehicle, they don't pack well. They take up a lot of very valuable space. Uh, for vehicles and vessels, you want what are called conformal tanks, which can fit into the available shape, which may, may be very complex. Methanol, you can do that. And finally, I'd add that methanol is produced in very large uh, volume globally. Uh, it's a commodity chemical in the top 10 traded chemicals globally. It's shipped internationally across oceans. It's moved in rail cars. It's moved in trucks, barrels, totes. All of the same infrastructure that moves oil products, including fuels, is the same infrastructure that moves methanol. So there's no requirement to build out a new and unique infrastructure, which is what we're talking about with the hub and smoke, spoke um, hydrogen production model. Yeah. Yep. That's a very good point there. With the... Sorry, I'm getting a little bit of uh, echoing going on there. It's odd. Okay, let's try that again. So that is very interesting. I think the with, with all that, it, it sounds with the decrease in temperature and the the decreased necessity to break those carbon bonds, and and the the physical ability just that methanol is already in a liquid state as opposed to having to compress it and turn it into liquid. I can see lots of opportunities to add up carbon savings and cost savings. Just out of curiosity, have you gotten to that point of starting to look at the, the carbon intensity of this hydrogen that you can produce and potentially the, the cost, if you're allowed to talk about that yet? Yeah. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so, 
as it um, as it relates to carbon intensity, you know, there's a fundamental uh, fact that I think all consumers should be thinking about uh, when they consider energy and and new future sources of energy. We have a legacy of energy technology that is very carbon intensive. So whether it's electricity production, um, transportation fuels for cars, boats, ships, trains, planes, our legacy infrastructure is very carbon intensive. So when we talk about uh, clean energy and transitioning from where we are to clean energy, we have to recognize that the entire energy industry needs to be uh, evaluated and needs to transform. I think we're comfortable with that knowledge as it relates to electricity. Um, we understand that coal-fired power plants need to be phased out and replaced with PV or wind or wave generation um, geothermal, but it's a transition, right? And, and it is happening, but it needs to continue to happen. So when you plug an appliance into an outlet in your house or your work, chances are very high that is not clean electricity, even though you don't see any emissions at the point of use. And the same is true for methanol. Methanol historically has been made from natural gas. Uh, in fact, the reason that methanol, or one reason that methanol is traded uh, in such high volume globally is because stranded natural gas assets, whether they be in the Middle East with no gas market, or the southern tip of South America, or northern Canada, um, the Caribbean, Southeast uh, Asia, natural gas that can't be connected to a market with pipelines has very low value. So how do you monetize that? And decades ago, it was decided that that remote natural gas could be converted to methanol. Methanol being a liquid is very easily transported in tanker ships anywhere in the world. That was the beginning of a global methanol economy. But that's not where we want to be because that methanol is carbon intensive. So what is the future? It's relying on biological feedstocks, and feedstocks that involve carbon dioxide that is captured from air or from industrial processes and converting that carbon dioxide into methanol. When you use biological feedstocks, the carbon intensity of methanol is very low. It falls below the EU standard or the US standard uh, for a green or renewable fuel. And it can even be strongly negative. Right? Now think about that for a moment. Um, you can't get to a negative carbon intensity from electricity produced by wind or PV. You can get very close to zero, but it'll never go negative. We can get there with methanol. And in fact, this is not just a theory. It's, it's, in, it's a commercial reality. There are many, many uh, plants globally producing renewable methanol from biological feedstocks that have a negative carbon intensity. And that's extremely valuable when you look at the overall energy industry. Those negative um, uh, CO2 intensities can be used to offset other sectors of the energy industry that are gonna be difficult to decarbonize. Or you can blend 
uh, renewable methanol with a negative carbon intensity with um, fossil-based methanol with a positive carbon intensity and end up with a blended feedstock that is at or very close to zero uh, CO2 equivalent per kilogram of hydrogen. So having a, a pathway to negative carbon intensity with methanol is an extremely powerful um, uh, tool in our toolbox of decarbonizing the global energy economy. So yeah, I can see how the how that methanol feedstock can really have a significant impact once we get to a a negative negative carbon instant intensity methanol. The I guess the 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 natural follow-up question here would be as we talk about methanol, if we if we start converting all of that to hydrogen production, what are the the current uses of methanol, and is there a potential that that we need significant additional methanol production in order to to meet those needs? Yeah, that, that's really a good question. Um, and again, I I, I want to provide the answer in the context of. Uh, of, of an analogy. <clears throat> and that analogy, again, I'm going to go back to electricity, right? We're, um, we're all familiar with the investments that are being made in renewable electricity production, whether that's wind, geothermal, solar, or other renewable uh, sources of electricity. Uh, but it's, a, it's an investment that has to be made, and that is being made, to transition our electrical infrastructure away from fossil-based generation to renewable-based generation. The same is true with methanol. Historically, the methanol industry has been built around mostly natural gas conversion to methanol. In China, they don't have much natural gas, so they built their uh, indigenous methanol industry around coal conversion to methanol. We need to transition away from that. The good news is that process started at least 20 years ago, and commercial plants have been operating for at least that time period uh, globally producing green methanol. Because of a strong pull from the international maritime industry to convert their ships and their boats from diesel fuel or bunker fuel to methanol, that transition is accelerating, meaning that more and more plants are being built, more and more plants are being funded and construction begun to produce renewable green methanol. So the marine industry deserves a lot of credit for looking to the future, recognizing that steps need to be taken today to decarbonize their, their um, carbon footprint based on their fuel consumption, and the decision has been made to go to methanol. That's great because that means methanol will be bunkered in ports around the world. What connects to ports? Rail. So moving methanol from port inland by rail is the most economical way to do it. So the transition is happening. More and more green methanol is coming online and that trend will continue for decades to come. Yep. That's great to, to hear. And, and I think that's, that's really exciting. 
So the the feedstock is going to be there. The methanol and green methanol is going to continue to to grow. Right. So that will be able to grow with the with the I you can call it the hydrogen economy or right. hydrogen ecosystem. So let's just talk a little bit about your technology specifically. What is because I, I don't often hear about methanol reforming. It's typically steam methane reforming or direct electrolysis. Right. So it, it all makes sense. But why why have I not heard about methanol reforming before? Why is it something that, that I'm just now hearing about? Right. Well, l- let's start with steam methane reforming. Um, you're right. That's one that you're going to hear a lot. <clears throat> and the reason is is simple. Most hydrogen produced today for commercial use, and by the way, NASA is one of the largest users of hydrogen, especially liquid hydrogen. Um, But again, it's also used captively in oil refining uh, and um, production of petrochemicals. The vast majority of that hydrogen is produced from the reaction of methane, which is natural gas, with water or with um, uh, water plus oxygen from air. That's called steam methane reforming. Multi, multi-decade um, uh, commercial experience with it, largely at very large scale, um, where you're talking um, world-scale plants that produce enough hydrogen to operate an oil refinery. So that technology does not scale down well um, to on-site production of hydrogen. And as I mentioned before, very high temperatures are required in that process that make it uh, not economically attractive. Uh, Water electrolysis is uh, a different type of process where water is separated into its um, basic uh, uh, atomic components of oxygen and hydrogen. That process is done using electricity. Again, a very, very old process that's been used uh, industrially for some time. Um, but the uh, the Achilles heel there is that you need electricity to make hydrogen. Now, electricity arguably is the most valuable form of energy that we use. The cheapest form, the least expensive, least valuable form of energy that we use is heat. Um, heat is used in uh, methane steam reforming and methanol reforming to make hydrogen. Those processes are called thermochemical processes as opposed to electrochemical, which is what water electrolysis is. Why have you not heard much about methanol reforming? Well, again, I guess I would go back to earlier question of why has on-site hydrogen production been slow to gain market share? And I think because there were many, many false starts over the decades. Methanol has an interesting commercial history as a fuel. It's widely used as a chemical feedstock. So it's widely used to make plastics, for instance, uh, paint products. Methanol is used as an antifreeze in windshield washer fluid. Um, It's been used in paint strippers. So it has a commercial history as a chemical feedstock or a chemical. But its use as a fuel uh, is somewhat spotty. Back in the mid-60s, Uh, the Formula One um, Racing uh, uh, Association moved away from high-octane gasoline in IndyCars 
and adopted methanol as a fuel. Methanol has a very high octane rating. Um, it was injected into aircraft engines during World War II uh, because of its um, octane enhancing um, capabilities. And that allows you to run engines at a very high compression ratio, so you get a lot more uh, power out of the engine. Why did the Formula One industry move away from high octane gasoline to methanol? Surprisingly, it was safety. Gasoline, uh, when it burns, radiates a lot of heat, and there were um, very serious injuries occur just because a driver was in proximity to a fire following a crash. Methanol doesn't radiate much heat. Um, now, the downside to that is the flame is hard to see, but um, uh, that was why methanol was adopted back in the 60s as a racing fuel. It is still used as a racing fuel. The United States dabbled with methanol or methanol gasoline mixtures for automobiles in the late 80s and early 90s, but it never really caught on. But dual, dual fuel engines first appeared back in that time frame. Um, and now in China, uh, methanol has made an appearance as a motor fuel, and China even has a methanol motor fuel national standard. So methanol has this spotty history as a fuel, but not consistent. And I think that uh, failure, um, along with the many, many experiments that occurred in the 90s, early 2000s, the uh, 20 teens uh, with different feedstocks all led to a lot of confusion and lack of traction with methanol as a feedstock. It is gaining traction now um, for hydrogen production, but, but it's been very, uh, very slow uh, to gain any momentum. Yeah, that is, I guess the, the, one of the hardest parts about research and bringing on any type of new development is if it's being done by multiple groups, you have that opportunity of multiple ideas being tested at once. But if you don't have, have consolidation or collaboration, then every one of those could just be, could be a, a lost project in the future, right? which is, which is challenging. Right. So I, I want to, I want to switch gears here. I think this is a good jumping point to talk about the AWS Clean Energy Accelerator because earlier you mentioned that one of the biggest benefits there was the collaboration and the and the cooperation effort that you've gotten from that. I I want to hear so you're you Element One is one of the 15 startups selected as part of the this third year, this third cohort. So for the listeners, can you give your perspective or your description of the Clean Energy Accelerator and kind of what, it, what, it, what it's like to be in that program? Yeah, yeah. I, I think Element One might be a little bit um, unusual for the uh, uh, Clean Energy Accelerator um, in many respects. We're a hardware company, not, not a software organization. And again, our licensing business model is, is rather unique. But having said that, um, I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be a part of the accelerator. Um, we had an opportunity to get exposed to the Amazon culture, corporate culture, which is very, very interesting. I've worked my entire career in companies with 50 or fewer employees. 
And, and so to, to get a chance to, um, you know, peek under the curtain and see and, and, and learn from what I think might be a rather unique culture, corporate culture for a large, very large organization, because they've carried through a lot of that entrepreneurial spirit. And, and that I think, I, I imagine is unique for companies the size of Amazon. So it, it was very good to, uh, to, to learn that, to be exposed to it. The collaborative atmosphere uh, is great. The opportunity, uh, and, the, and one of the reasons we were excited to be part of this is the opportunity to meet potential customers or partners down the road. Uh, and I, I put Amazon into that same category because of Amazon's um, uh, 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 Clean Climate Pledge Fund. Amazon has invested not only in, in uh, uh, venture capital to support companies focused on clean energy, but to transform their use of energy at data centers and for delivery vehicles to uh, a, a form that has a much, much lower carbon intensity. We met several uh, European-based companies, several North American companies, um, all, all of which have their own perspective on how to transition to clean energy. And so learning from that, whether a future business relationship evolves from it or not, being exposed to that perspective uh, has been very valuable. So yeah, it's been great experience for Element One. Yeah, and I think that is that is one of the great benefits of any accelerator program and any opportunity to go out to conferences and networking is getting that additional exposure right. Right. And and viewpoints to see, wait, how do I fit into the market? How does how are other people looking at the market? Yeah. yeah. So you uh, you alluded to it. You are you you are a little unique in that you're not a software company and you're part of this this accelerator program. So as a hardware company developing hardware and and actual physical products that you are then licensing, how does working with and in the the accelerator program, how does how does that and, and the cooperation with AWS actually accelerate your growth as a company? Well, I, I think the the most obvious answer to that question would be through the connections that we've been able to make that the accelerator program facilitated um, with potential end users. Now, the success for Element One, uh, being that we operate a licensing business model, is in finding global partners that excel at manufacturing our technology, as well as um, marketing and selling it. For those licensing partners to be successful in, in that uh, endeavor requires customers. So Element One is always looking at uh, partnering from two different perspectives. One is direct partnership with an entity that excels at manufacturing, marketing, and sales, and then identifying and forming relationships with end users, companies that want to buy that technology. Um, and so through the accelerator program, we had the opportunity to meet, I think, eight to 10 different global companies that 
really fit into the latter category that have interest in using hydrogen technology in one form or another, whether it be on vehicle or off vehicle uh, for hydrogen production, or maybe off vehicle for electricity production. And, and that's been extremely valuable. The other aspect of this that was an eye-opener is the um, cloud computing um, data collection uh, and analytical services that are available through Amazon. That's not a function that Element One will use directly, but by sharing those capabilities with our licensing partners, I think that there'll be future business uh, that benefits in both ways uh, in, in, in that sector, in that area. Yeah, I could see how the the ability to connect with potential end users that's a that's an obvious opportunity. But then, as as you were talking about it, the the whole licensing aspect of of having a manufacturer producing this, and then that manufacturing process has multiple steps. They have to understand get the get all of the components, and then being able to optimize their system and optimize who they are selling those to it it becomes this quickly could get out of hand for a single person developing a single widget yeah so i could see where that value lies so we've kind of already talked about potential potential uh challenges like the methanol supply chain and 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 additional feedstocks and and growth of of this specific part of the hydrogen economy. I do want to ask a question though. When I've thought about this, I I've alluded to the idea of in the future we're going to see just like we see gas stations now, we could see hydrogen stations in the future. Before I was thinking, okay, we have to develop all of these pipelines to put these together. But it's really exciting to to hear about methanol, which I haven't before, and think about we've already got that infrastructure to store methanol or store a liquid fuel. And now you could essentially take one of the element one systems, set that up and have your hydrogen fueling station. And, and as you, you have on the website, you could also use that hydrogen to generate electricity to also have your EV systems. So I guess that that's a big, long, long-winded way of saying, what do you see as the future of, of either transportation infrastructure or where do you see Element One fitting into what this future energy transition mix is? Yeah, a, a, again, a great, great question. Um, you know, energy is a commodity that I think is often taken for granted. Um, we use, we meaning uh, here in the United States, but, you know, I would say the same is true for Europe, um, uh, vast parts of, um, of uh, Asia, South America, uh, Africa, to some degree. Uh, we use electricity and liquid fuels or gaseous fuels, and, and we just take it for granted that they're, they're going to be there. Um, in fact, the whole, in, the whole network, whole infrastructure uh, related to energy is very complex. And, and it has to work for stationary uses of energy and mobility uses for energy. But when looking at alternatives to what we currently do, 
those are very, very different um, equations to solve for, very different problems to solve. What, what I imagine uh, happening over the next five years is a much larger opportunity to use methanol to hydrogen production combined with a fuel cell to make electricity at stationary at stationary locations more so than on vehicles. Although you can certainly apply the exact same solution on board a vehicle. An analogy would be um, a diesel generator that um, is uh, uh, in use today. That diesel generator is a diesel engine combined with a mechanical to electricity generator called a generator. Um, you could also put that generator and that engine on a vehicle and make electricity. That's done, for instance, in the uh, Toyota Prius, but really any um, hybrid automobile uh, would have an engine generator on board to help charge those batteries. So you can think of the methanol to hydrogen generator as the engine and the fuel cell as the generator, the part that makes the electricity. The reason that we're so bullish on electricity production uh, with our technology is because if you look at the world, about one third of the world's population has no access to electricity. One third of the world's population has intermittent access to electricity. What is that? It means you have rolling blackouts, if not every day, at least multiple times during a week. And those blackouts could be 12 hours or more during the day. Wow. And then one third of the world's electricity, and we tend to be in that group, has reliable access to electricity. But as we want to move away from engine-based transportation to electrified transportation, the role of batteries is going to be very, very large there. Now, my fuel cell colleagues may take issue with that. I think there's plenty of room for both battery electric vehicles and fuel cell electric vehicles. But today and next year and the following year, battery electric vehicles will have a much higher fraction of the um, vehicular application market compared to fuel cell electric vehicles. How are we going to charge those battery electric vehicles? How are we going to provide green, low carbon intensity electricity at data centers or at telecommunication sites or any place where you currently have diesel generators backing up the grid? The grid is a finely tuned machine that produces enough electricity to match what we consume. You can't suddenly add megawatts of electricity consumption where the corner gas station is. You can't add megawatts of electricity supply to apartment complexes or to housing communities or even to business parks. So how do you solve that? I would argue one way is you eliminate the need for the grid and you go to on-site production of electricity from methanol. The analogy would be moving away from copper wired based telecommunications to wireless communications. Uh, and so we think the near-term potential for using methanol to hydrogen and then hydrogen in fuel cells is with stationary electricity production as opposed to onboard vehicles. Having said that, 
The exception that I would point to will be very, very heavy vehicles like shipping, um, whether it be ferries or working boats where you're looking at one or larger or one or more megawatts of electricity production. Batteries don't fit that space well at all. And there you have the real estate, the very high power needs to justify onboard fuel cells and onboard methanol to hydrogen production. Okay. Yeah. It, when you think Think about about the idea, thinking about the idea of, of getting rid of the grid, that is, that is a, a big statement. And that's a, for some, it would, it would cause a, a, a visceral reaction of how, how could we do that? How could that ever make sense? But the way that you explained it there with the stationary production and, and having renewable methanol and having that feedstock ready and, and the way that there is all of this building of transmission and, and need for, for updating and, and retrofitting and building more transmission, if we continue to go the traditional traditional power grid route, it it does make sense that there is the opportunity and the potential and, and maybe the the better option to start moving away from big large scale transmission of power into more center more stationary end use focused and and um, and microgrid right. style setups. Yeah, yeah, and th- very, there's a couple very interesting. There's a couple of um, you know reasons to to really give that a lot of thought. Um, cost is the most obvious, but then you have um, right of way and permitting. Uh, you know, when was the last time a large pipeline was put in to the United States or a, a long transmission line or a new power plant? Those processes take often decades to work through the courts, get all of the environmental impact statements done, the right of ways negotiated, paid for. So there's there's an expense in the form of money and an expense in the form of time uh, and uncertainty that go with these huge projects. Yeah. Having said that, let's not forget that when you have large infrastructure projects based on, on production of energy, whether it's electricity or, or otherwise, at a point, and then you distribute the energy from that point, that system becomes very vulnerable, very vulnerable to hacking. Um, you know, so cybersecurity is always going to be a challenge with these large infrastructure projects. And almost by definition, point of use generation and consumption is less of a risk because you have thousands of sites where you're producing and using, in this case, electricity as composed to a large network that's based on a grid-based infrastructure. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, with that, I want to transition one more time into my final questions. I think there's a good transitionary point. So that first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? <laughs> okay. I'm going to assume that that question is more focused on the topic we've been discussing. And so for readers that want to know more about methanol 
as an energy source, how it's been been used uh, as a fuel, how it's made, and the potential. I would direct you to um, the Methanol Economy by George Ola, O-L-A-H. Fantastic book. Um, you'll find it very entertaining as well as informative. And not to self-promote, but I will. If you want to know more about the technology that we use here at Element One, um, I have a book out there. It's called Methanol Fuel Cell Systems, and it will introduce you to methanol reforming, uh, why methanol is a good feedstock, if not a great feedstock. And it'll also talk a bit about fuel cells if you want to get knowledgeable in that space. If you want to talk right. about entertainment, I would direct you to um, a whole long list of um, techno thrillers, which is a genre that I enjoy reading. Interesting. Yeah, we will have to talk about that more later. So the the next question is, how do we get to net zero? You know, I think we're on the right pathway. Um, I'm, I, I think we're at a point in time where there's this um, perfect storm of government initiatives really around the world, not just a few countries, but but the vast majority. Um, you have consumers pulling for clean energy. You have industry investing in clean energy, often without prompting, but in some cases, uh, and I'm thinking of Exxon in particular here and, and their board of directors, where you know new directors are coming on board with a strong mandate toward um, reducing carbon intensity. So I, I think it's a perfect storm. I think industry is doing a great job. Consumers are wanting green products. They're paying for them. And then government is providing incentives. And I, and I think that's the way it should be. I can't imagine anything that I would recommend changing, but it's going to take time. And so my advice to everyone who is interested in achieving this goal, be patient. Look for the uh, the small wins. It takes many, many battles to win a war. And, you know, th this is going to take time. Um, we have to change legacy thinking and legacy investments in infrastructure. And that won't happen overnight. Yep. I like it. I think that's good. Patience is key. So the next question, now you actually get to ask me a question. <laughs> well, um, I've never been in that position before. Uh, so I guess I would ask, does this make sense? Um, what you've heard from me, what you know about the approach that uh, is being taken with hydrogen, both to support electrification indirectly and directly. What, what, what do you think of that? And does it make sense to you as a potential consumer? Yeah, I I do think it makes sense. I think it's very interesting and exciting. I think that one of the biggest challenges as you talk about the energy transition is, is the infrastructure and the way that we would have to upgrade existing infrastructure and how we would have to change infrastructure, whether it is talking about hydrogen hubs or whether it's talking about building out the the EV charging stations getting from from 
New York City to LA. It it is a a daunting task to think about the infrastructure necessary to electrify everything. But when you talk about methanol and using methanol for hydrogen production, now it is a little bit closer to what we already have and it feels a little bit more familiar so that it is it's a little less daunting and a little less um almost just like such a big challenge to think about the whole thing now it's just oh well we we can we can literally keep the gas stations we have in in a sense do some retrofitting we can we can do this and and this is a solution that you could start seeing all over it's not something that you need you need a a large billion or multi-billion dollar project in order to just get started like the like the hydrogen hubs right. or or like building a new nuclear power plant right. so i do i do like it i think this is going to have a i hope it has a significant role in in the future of our energy ecosystem and i i for one am excited for for you for for this space and for for what what is to come yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. We have to rebuild the energy infrastructure, but that's not to say that all aspects of it need to be thrown out. Uh, not at all. Yeah. Let's figure out what we can repurpose and and avoid that investment because it, it is a huge investment. It's not billions of dollars. It's trillions of dollars and it's decades. Um, and uh, having said all of that, it's worthwhile doing. It's, uh, it's definitely something yep. that needs to be done. Yep, absolutely. Well, Dave, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Um, no, uh, n- not really, other than to thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I enjoy talking about what we're doing, um, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of the uh, uh, Amazon Energy Accelerator Program. So for any uh, of my... Um, colleagues and associates out there that um, are, are interested in energy, have an energy business, I'd encourage you to take a look at that program. Great. Thank you, Dave. Thank you again for joining me on the show. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. If you're into stickers, I have a way to get you some from us. Go to my show notes, find that one-question survey link, fill it out, and once you do, we will send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email address is joe.batir at OGGN.com. If you don't use email, find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.